0: Wonderful Radio Flanagan with me, Paul Flanagan. Welcome to the Fab Four's French Frolic. This is the story of four boys hitchhiking down to the south of France in the summer of 1983 we were 18 going on 19 i think that's from the sound of music isn't it yeah we hitchhiked down to the south of france um and my best mate dave who was my hitching buddy at the time sadly passed away earlier this year he'd have liked this podcast so yeah this one's for dave as well the fab Four's french frolic so the fab four's french frolic so me and dave and michael and anthony uh up in teesside in the northeast of england uh we'd sat around and we discussed this um you know hitch down to the south of france i think it was all in the vein of you know people used to go grape picking in the summers and that kind of thing but we didn't want to work we just wanted to go and have a laugh and we'd you know been at school and we'd got um you know uh, Laurie lee on our minds and the whole adventurous idea of actually going down to the south of France was like something that was really appealing. Uh, we had no clue. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, we had no clue at all. Uh, we did do some um, some practice uh, camping, as it were. And we did, I remember two particular uh, incidences of uh, of camping, and I use the words incident, and we'll come back to that later on. Um, we did. Uh, we went and camped on a beach for some reason. I have no idea why we went and camped on the beach. It was down in in Marsk, a place called Marsk in North Yorkshire. And uh, we decided that we'd have a, a campfire on the beach. And it looked really odd as well because uh, it's not Malibu. It's not, you know, it's North Yorkshire. <laughs> and so we dragged some driftwood from somewhere where we got somewhere. Where, and we had this fire and uh, we camped on the beach and the tide came in. <laughs> And the tide came in and it put the fire out and it soaked the sleeping bags and so that was the end of that so that was that was just a a practice sleeping out one night uh, on the beach Uh, we did actually practice um a thing with tents um uh, mick and anthony they they went and bought uh, a special tent uh, for the journey i believe it was one of these um uh, two-man sporty tent things, you know, that you get from one of these sports shops. You know, lightweight and you know, the sort of thing that you can fold up and fit up your bottom or something if you needed to. Very, very, very small tent. Um, the one that uh, Dave and I took uh, belonged to my uh, eldest brother Chris, and it was a one that he'd used many, many years ago um, with him and a friend Adrian. They'd gone off to Yugoslavia, and they'd been hitchhiking around Yugoslavia. And uh, this was a huge tent. I mean, this was like a tent with like a big bell part at the end of it. You know, that you could like maybe put an extension on and have a conservatory or something. This was a huge tent. Um, and they'd uh, dragged that around Yugoslavia with them. And one of the best stories that uh, that, that Chris told me was that um, one night they, they got into Belgrade, as it was then, capital of Yugoslavia, and um, they didn't know where to sleep. So they slept in this doorway. And, and they woke up the following morning and they were in the um, the doorway of the communist headquarters. <laughs> so, yeah, they legged it from there pretty quickly. So, so, we basically, we were, you know, uh, Dave and I were going to be using this um, uh, this tent that was probably wanted, you know, on on various documents, It was probably like photographed by a secret police somewhere. Um, and also, the the other thing, the the other time that we went out uh, camping was um, uh, to use these tents. So, so, Mick and Anthony had their. You know, a, a super spotty tent. And Dave and I had this uh, ma- mahoosive thing that was uh, honed out of, um, you know, various uh, buffalo. I, I I don't know, but it was like a really old tent and it was it was, it was was fantastic. We had the fly sheet and everything. It was really good. So we went out onto the, uh, the North York Moors. Now, um, this was a time, um, back in the 80s, there was a massive fire on the North York Moors and it burnt a lot of the heather down. So it was it kind of levelled the place. It it looked like um, these photographs that you see of Mars. It was, it really was quite uh, quite barren up there. So um, we drove the car up to what we thought was the middle of nowhere. You know we couldn't get any further on the road. So we you know, got all the camping gear out, went down and camped, camped for the night. Um, you know built a fire, um, had some whatever we had to eat with us. Probably ham and cheese sandwiches again. <laughs> and um and so we and so before we settle down for the night, I learned a very important point. That um if you're gonna put a fire out, uh use water, don't just urinate on the hot rocks because it doesn't half stink. So that was my first lesson in camping. Uh, my second lesson in camping was um make sure that you know where you're actually camping. And the reason that I say this was it was about midnight and all of a sudden we start to hear noises and voices and lights uh, you know, out out to the far side of the tents. We were thinking, what on earth is that? You know, what are all these lights? You know, what is this about? And then we and then these uh the lights were getting closer and the voices and that and we heard people walking and it was like, dum, dum, dum. and apparently um there is a um a walk across the moors, which is a twelve hour walk, and they do it from um uh, you know the middle of the afternoon to the early in the morning so the crossing over the middle of the moors at midnight and we had actually camped on the path <laughs> so we had literally people and it was like it was just so totally bizarre and we were like looking out of the tents and they were looking at us as well like what are you doing camping on our path and it didn't look like a path to me it's out in the middle of a scotched moorland Anyway, so yeah, so our so that was our our main sort of um, uh, testing ground for the tents, really. Uh, one camp on the North York was out in the middle of a walk somewhere. So let's get down to it then. So it was the second last week of July, 1983, as I walked out one Midsummer's morning. That's uh, <laughs> Laurie Lee again, bless him. Um, onto the Dover-Calais ferry clutching the second half of a day return ticket i purchased at a discount price from a french guy in the terminal at dover so basically i was doing something dodgy such high drama uh, before we'd even reached the continent i had visions of being thrown in the brig for impersonating a (laughs) frenchman as if you know as if i look french (laughs) Um, at least all that adrenaline Kept my travel sickness under control because I, I actually had really bad travel sickness then. Um, you couldn't really go like five miles in the car without feeling ill. So um, getting on a cross-channel ferry was going to be a uh, was going to be quite interesting. And to be honest, after spending the night sleeping on a grassy slope in Drove, Dover Priory Park, because again, like the uh, trip at Easter, the the ferry terminal floor had been occupied by a dozen of other backpackers. Uh, we just wanted to get across to uh, dry land even if it was French and then have a good night's sleep so I've got my diary here and I'm just reading from a diary and it says Dover disappeared dreamily as Calais called quietly (laughs) I'll read that again Dover disappeared dreamily as Calais called quietly yes it it sounds like bollocks but that's really what it was like and I only had um, a 136 shot roll of 35mm film in in a little tiny plastic camera that's all i had um but i uh, i took some amazing photographs on the way and i've got my photo album with me now you can't see this but i've got page one of the album and we see uh, the view from the rear end of the ferry that's there's dover bye um and then we got a disappearing white cliffs of dover and then there's one picture <laughs> taken by dave of me and i've got it entitled un dodgy hitchhiker anglais and, and and honestly, you think I was being shipped off to some camp somewhere. I mean, I, I look so miserable. This was like the start of a holiday of a lifetime. But apparently, um, I wasn't feeling too good that day. I look terrible. <laughs> anyway, so we're on the ferry and we're, uh, we're going from Dover to Calais. Uh, we got to Calais and Calais was and still is uh, a very uneventful and non-photogenic place to enter the country. I think by the time we came ashore, uh, the bus to transfer us uh, to the ferry terminal uh, had long since gone. Whatever the French for indignant was, I had it in spades. It was about half a mile's walk to the brand new terminal. When we got there, it was empty. It was empty. (laughs) There was nobody there. Uh, We hung around for a few minutes to see if any officials emerged. I carried my newly acquired Indignancy Francais. Uh, through the non existent Douane area. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that, but it's D O U N E, Douin. Uh, basically, French customs. There was nobody there, and we were out into another half a mile walk across a car park to the nearest road. That is Vive la France for you. That was the first. Our first impressions of France was what? Eh? <laughs> and now we come on to the first of many incidents. Um, Dave and I classified. Uh, d- different pinpoints through the journey as incidents. So we're going to come across the saint Omer incident. <laughs> We'd agreed that the quickest way out of Calais was by train. And looking at a map, it showed that San Omer, or Saint Omer to anybody who's trying to work it out properly, uh, was on a main road, but slightly in the countryside. So we took the train there, and we shambled into San Omer like an outtake from the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> were the locals peeping out from behind large white shuttered windows muttering to themselves can we trust these gringos with all the town's money and maybe a couple of girls to help fight off the bandits from the hills who come down and rape our cattle burn the women and steal our wheat? Anyway and um, so that foolish romantic idea was dashed from our heads thinking that we were in some like backwater kind of french town when we walked into this uh french bar and um, we saw this massive Watney's Red Barrel pump head now i'll, I'll explain about Watney's um <laughs> Watney's Red Barrel Watney's Red Barrel is a uh or was a, i don't even know if they make it now uh Watney's Red Barrel is a London beer um and it's t- just mainly drank in London and uh <laughs> it's not very nice it isn't a nice beer but uh, when they advertise it in bars uh, in England, they ha- it's, it's a massive pump head that sits on the bar. Now, so we're in this kind of provincial uh, French town, and a French bar is, is typically not a lot to it, is it? You, you just kind of walk in, it's a bar. It has a flat top to it, and they put glasses on it like that, and trays and things. And at the far end of the bar was this massive Watney's Red Barrel thing. So, you know, there was... Um, some kind of uh, influence going on there, basically harmful effects on the French society. I think that uh, I think that was going on. So we didn't have any of uh, any of the Watneys, and we had. <laughs> I was pr- trying to pronounce it. There. Quatre Coca Cola et de sandwich jambon avec fromage. That's <laughs> uh, four Coca Colas and a uh, ham and cheese sandwich, <laughs> and then we moseyed on out of the town to pitch the tents. If anyone's reading this and has a map, um, please do follow it carefully. Me and Dave didn't take a map. We didn't take a map to France. We didn't have a map. We were going to hitchhike the length of France without a map. I'm just going to say this over and over again, just to let it sink in. So we were educated people. You know, we've been through school and college, and we decided that uh, oh, there's France. It only looks that big on the map when you when you look at a you know world map. It's only that big. How could we possibly go wrong? So we didn't have a map. Um, We did get a map later on, but I'll come on to that. So, the San Omer incident. This is how it happened. Our first evening's camping. Oh, what excitement. The joy of unpacking our gear could only be paralleled with, quite frankly, every other time we did it. The grass. Uh, The last decent grass we ever saw in France was lush and green. And the tent pegs sank seductively into the soil. Do you like that? Seductively into the soil. Now, this makes a big difference. Um, Sorry, just having some orange juice. It makes a big difference, uh, tent pegs and the ground. As we found out when we got down to the south of France, and it was like trying to hammer tent pegs into concrete, I think I remember we had to um, we tried to soften the ground with bottles of water and just pour bottles of water into the ground to try to make it soft it was a silly thing to do really we just had to buy some industrial tent pegs but anyway that's another story so, what a merry band we were. We were young, we were free, we were bloody hungry. And why does it take so long for those sodding gas burners to heat anything up? You know the, the little gas burners that you take for campsites and camping with? Um, and you, you put them on there and, you, and, you're, and you're all full of excitement and you think to yourself, oh yes, we'll turn this on, we'll heat up this thing and we'll have... Bidi-bom, bidi-bom, avec And like an hour later, you're gnawing away at your foot. Anyway, there were two tin products we ate at regular intervals on this trip. One was ravioli, as you know, ravioli—little pasta parcels packed with beef—and the other one was cassole. Cassole is a strange beast. Um, cassole is like meat, sometimes like sausage, sometimes duck, sometimes some of the i don't know it's france isn't it it could have been horse you don't really know but they sold it in cans and it had like sort of cabbage and um and sort of like odd vegetables some kind of strange odd french vegetables so it was like meat that you might recognize meat that you might not recognize vegetables you think you know what they are and unknown vegetables as well but they sold them in a the can uh, i think it was probably the the french version of irish stew um, it, it was quite wholesome It was even better when you poured a bottle of wine in it <laughs> It was quite wholesome But the ravioli Yeah, I mean, the ravioli, after a time You just got sick of it uh, I couldn't actually um, Have any ravioli for years after that camping trip uh, And even when we do Go in a restaurant and have ravioli I've got to sit cross-legged on the floor And eat it off a dirty tin plate Because it, it, that's all I know So, um we settled down for the evening's campfire chat, to discuss the opening day's play of the adventure, and did we have enough string to find our way back again? <laughs> now, um, I never smoked cigarettes regularly before. Uh, in fact, none of us had really. Uh, but this was France, and we were young. We were free. We bought some And uh, But why didn't anyone see it said "sans filtre" on the packet? Now, sans filters, to, uh, to us English-speaking people, basically means um, it hasn't got any filters. So it's just the uh, the stub of the, um, you know, it's like tobacco in, in, in a bit of paper without any filter on the end of it. And my constitution, as uh, <laughs> as David would often remind me, it wasn't the best in the world, but chewing on Charles Aznavour's semi-lit navel fluff wasn't the most exhilarating mind and body enhancing experience so remember just say no (laughs) so the san omer incident was over the following morning i lost the toss don't ask me what was on the coin i've got no idea and i had to go over to the farmhouse on the other side of the road to ask for water the farmer's wife she'd seen it all before ravioli stains string Charles Aznavour butt-ends everywhere. She pointed to a tap in the yard where we could fill up the bottles. And once refreshed and packed, the fab foe split into dynamic duos to boldly go. And we definitely did.
1: When the Nazis marched on Paris, the French were quite embarrassed. I think you know what I mean. So the angry got together to circulate a letter to bring down the Vichy regime. A few months later, an underground paper called Defense de la France had 10,000 circulation. All across the nation to spread their intelligence. You have to be of sound body and mind, ready to leave your friends behind. Everybody, Everybody was in the French Resistance, resistance. now. Pierre-Georges Fabien at the metro station decided there was no turning back. Was determined, assassinated a German, the first French resistance attack. Now Joseph Epstein and his gang of fifteen. Oh man, they really knew where it was at. Policemen can't be trusted, called them maladjusted, but they were just taking France back. You have to be a sound body of mine, ready to leave your friends behind. But he was in the French resistance now. The Nazi occupation was an awkward situation still in 1942. But Jean Gouillard wrote the silence still a mare that told you exactly what to do. Jean Moulin said, hey guys, come on, and united all the resistance groups. And in 1943, Civilians McKean fought alongside Allied troops. You have to be a sound body of mind, ready to leave your friends behind. Everybody was in the the French resistance resistance now. The Free Frenches were hiding in the trenches listening to their radios the information from the allied nations giving them the where to go the carrots are cooked the dice they've been thrown the caras are cooked the dice, the dice they've been thrown you have to be sound body of mind, ready to leave everybody was in the french resistance
0: everybody was in the french resistance everybody was in the french resistance now ooh and back in the room okay chapter 2 chapter 2 so where were we oh yes yes we were just leaving san omer so um uh, Dave and I, uh, we walked. We split up into into pairs, so it was me and Dave and Mick and Anthony. And the idea was that um, we 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 had the strange idea to to phone home to each other's parents, and that we would find out, uh, you know, where each respective, um, uh, you know, pair were hitching in, down in the south of France. Um, but it never worked. I mean, this is this is before mobile phones. You know, bear in mind before mobile phones, and where France was still. F- Um, had francs and phone boxes were very hard to find so it was clear um, (laughs) after about the first day that this was not going to (laughs) work but it it was a novel idea but we had no idea how we were going to meet up or indeed where we were going to meet up I don't think we'd even discussed um, the final destination Of where we were actually going to meet up It was kind of like d- details like this That we really should have lined up beforehand But I think we were just like going for it And we were going to see what happened So Dave and I uh, left Saint-Omer And uh, we got our first kind of proper lift uh, From some strange couple um, And it was a, And they never spoke a word of English <laughs> And they had a, 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 You know A 2CV, a De chevaux um, uh, as you uh, may well know your French cars are not, uh, two CVs were basically um, biscuit tins with a hairdryer engine in it. And if you do know your cars, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, they were, there, there were just only just quite a car. Um, and with four people in, two people with rucksacks, it was just barely a car that was moving. <laughs> But they they took us um, with hardly saying a word to us. Uh, maybe they just felt that they should get us off the streets of France or something. Maybe that was it. But anyway, they took us to um, a little town called uh, Lillez. I think that's how you pronounce it. L i double L i e r s. And this place was um, not memorable at all. Uh, the, I've got a picture of it actually in the uh, in my photo album. Um, now remember, I only had like thirty six shots so each of these pictures uh, is memorable because i chose them specifically to take them at the time Uh, no digital cameras or phones then come on and uh, i've took a picture of the railway station and the reason why i took a picture of the railway station was and it's just a big white building and it doesn't look like anything special and there was nobody inside of it um, in fact there was no trains for a couple of hours, uh, but the reason I took the picture was that um, I'm, I was just disappointed it's not a scratch and sniff picture, because it the, the railway station smelt like it had been rubbed down with like 10 tons of haddock and cod and fish and everything, and this wasn't near the coast, and it, this wasn't like a depot for anything. Maybe like there was some dead bodies somewhere, I don't know, but it, it, it smelt like a fish factory, but um, but it clearly wasn't. Anyway. Um so we took the train from uh, Lille to Arras. Arras is in northern France. That's A R A S. And that was uh, an interesting well it was an interesting place for us um because the the campsite was overrun. Um it was the you know um it it was in the um what we would call a factory fortnight in England. So uh, in England the factory fortnight uh, towards the end of August and it was traditionally where um, factories in, in sort of Manchester and the Midlands, they would take uh, two weeks off and they would all go to Blackpool or Skegness or somewhere like that. Same sort of thing here. People from the north of France were going to the south, people from the south were going to the north. So the campsite in Eras was full. So they, um, the council had decided that they should put the overspill uh, into, a, um, uh, into the garden uh, of the municipal library. So we were part of that overspill, and we had the absolute delight of having two leather-clad um, motorbikers from Yorkshire, who were uh, resting their fiery steeds a while <laughs> on their return leg of a tour of Germany. So they'd driven the bikes down from Yorkshire, they'd gone uh, all the way down to Germany, and then they were coming back. Then, so. Speaking the same language, which was a pretty unfortunate coincidence in this case, uh, we got to talking with them. And during the conversation, uh, two other international bikers parked up alongside for the night as well. So there was me and Dave, two bikers from Yorkshire, and two other international bikers. So being the um, the bunctious fellows that Yorkshiremen are, uh, the two Yorkshire bikers, they launched into several storeys about how stupid the Germans were. they found those stories highly amusing. But what was even more amusing was that the other two bikers who had pulled up weren't laughing at the stories at all. That's because they had the letter D on the back of their machines. (laughs) Now that means something to you and me. It didn't mean anything to the Yorkshire bikers. So after a time, I stopped one of the Yorkshire guys and I told him about, you know, they've got the letter D on the back of the bikes and he said aye i wondered why they weren't laughing i thought d stood for denmark oh my god as we all know the d stands for deutschland (laughs) they were german bikers (laughs) and the yorkshiremen were making fun of the germans so um yeah that was quite good (laughs) it was it came to like a stalemate at the end of the evening where um the two german guys just like abruptly got up and walked off and, and, and got in their tents and then the two Yorkshire guys, they couldn't care less, they they just couldn't care less. And me and Dave were just laughing about it. But um, Arras, the following morning, also produced uh, one of my top 10 photos of all time, uh, top 10 photos of all time ever, anywhere in the world, anytime, and uh, it features Dave <laughs> and um I, I, you know he'd attempted to shave his beard off and he only had a bag of safety razors so um he, he basically cut himself to death uh with all these uh, i mean there's a picture of him he's sort of like cross-legged on the floor and uh he's got this and he's got a towel around his neck which was white but then it's covered in blood and he's got antiseptic cream in his hand and he's attempting to uh, patch up the carnage that he's, uh, you know, produced all over his face. And he looked up He looked up. at I me mean, just as I took the photograph and he said, it isn't funny, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It, it makes me laugh. It makes me laugh even now. <laughs> yes. So, uh, anyway, uh, during my research on this epic journey, um, I came across a list of uh, lifts that we had in France. So, using uh, photographic evidence... And expert cartiographical? Is that a word? Study of maps? I don't know what you do when you cartio... Anyway, so using evidence and maps and plotting it, it seemed like me and Dave had a hard time going from and getting around Cambrai. Now, Cambrai... um, Now, if you look at a map, remembering what me and Dave didn't have, a map, well, now that I see that Arras is only... 20 miles from Cambrai on a straight road. Um, Now, a mad couple in a CV gave us a lift to the top of the nearest auto route, which is only 9 kilometres from Cambrai. Now, one might think, even in French, that stuck on the top of a motorway and pointing in the right direction, that the natural result of the next lift would be travelling in that direction. (laughs) Au contraire, mon ami. A delightful lady with her two children crammed me and Dave into the back seat of her car and promptly did a U-turn and we ended up getting out 10 kilometres north of her ass. We walked a long time that day. We walked a long time. Many hours later, things were getting desperate and having exhausted all of the methods of hitching and there are lots of different methods of hitching, not just using your thumb, um, you can use a clipboard, you can wave, you can dance by the side of the road. I got down on my hands and knees and I begged a car to stop. Now, I know that sounds bad and there isn't a photograph of it, but I literally did because we'd had enough. <laughs> so I begged the car to stop and it worked. And um, <laughs> he was going to Cambrai. So we piled in and little did the three of us know at that time that we had just concluded our parts in the Cambrai incident. That's another incident. So we've had the saint Omer incident and we've had the Cambrai incident. So if Sunday is a day of rest, this is now Sunday the 31st of July, 1983, God had never hitchhiked in France. After an enormous walk from the campsite in Ras, or Reims, is that? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. We took a, we took a train from Cambrai to Reims. I don't think it's pronounced Reims, because there's a place that's spelt R-E-I-M-S, um, and I think it's called pronounced Ras. So we've gone from Cambrai to Ras, and then we took this enormous walk to the outskirts of town. Um, we endured several hours in the baking sun. Several hours in the baking sun. Um, but for this penance, and as a reward, we were sent a gorgeous black haired beauty, I'm reading this now from my diary, with legs all the way up her shorts and further. Amazing French girls, eh? Sadly, this was only another of those 20 mile trips. I think we didn't have much in common to talk about, you know, like the same language. And after several more hours being fried, uh, we got a lift, another lift, for three miles. This is three miles. <laughs> I, it was like, what's going on? Um, I was beginning to think that God was French and that we were getting the runaround. And there's other strange things that go through your head, like, did the French government know they have roads going to places that aren't even on the map? I mean, I've got a, I've got a, a photo entitled "Oo," which is "Where," and uh, where I'm posing with a road sign. Uh, and it's the D33 where I am 2.1 kilometres from monchy le prix and 0.8 kilometres from Roux. <laughs> and I can't find these places on the map. Um, but one of the most memorable, memorable, memorable reactions to me and Dave in France was by a little boy in some northern French town who asked um, when we said uh, who asked where we were going, and I said we're going to Le Sud which is the South, Uh, he flipped. He'd obviously thought his comprehension, it was beyond his comprehension. The great North-South divide exists even in France, he said, reading from his diary. And as a byproduct actually of of traveling through France, uh, I noticed that during the long hot summer, um, Coca-Cola was at about five or six different prices down the whole length of France. I was just wondering, do they know that? I mean I was it's the first time I've been aware that products were priced at different prices. You know, airports or ferry terminals is fine. But to have a bottle of cook uh, in some small little provincial town just outside Paris and then in some small little provincial town just outside Marseille, I thought it would have been the same price, but apparently not. <laughs>
2: French water makes me smarter. French water makes me suave. French water is so sparkling fresh and clean. French water's better for you cause it's taken from a cave by the Klausi folks who made the guillotine. French water turned my whole life around. French water makes my hair grow pretty. French water from the French underground French water is the only drink for me I went down to the market with an unenlightened friend he said hey buddy let me get this clear near three bucks a bottle it's an awful lot to spend it don't get you drunk but it costs more than beer I quoted revelations where old Jesus comes again it says he does things differently next time he crashes swanky parties running out of baby and and he makes that holy water out of wine French water now I'm really in style, French water, so sophisticated, French water, travels thousands of miles, French water is the only drink for me, Charlotte. so A flows night and day, deep in the heart of Vichy, deep in the heart of Vichy, there's a bubbly water well, they say it's really, really, really cold, the French there got together and they bottle it to sell, now they laugh and say it might as well be gold. Last night with my lady as i took her off to bliss she said my god how can you go so long i stood up naked and i said it goes like this and i sang the chorus from this french water song french water makes you better in bed french water Makes me really sexy, French water, several studies have said, French water increases potency, French water, no expense should be spared, French water, can you say bourgeoisie, French water, it might be full of air, but French water is the only.
0: Say la vie. So let's have a little recap. So where were we? Ah yes, it's Sunday the thirty-first of July, and uh, we just got a lift to a garage from some bloke. Um, and looking at my diary, I can see uh, we then got. Uh, I'm quoting here. We got a lift from a fella through Vitry-le-François onto the D396 to Brienne-le-Château so you can do that on google maps if you like the Vit- Vitry-le-Francois and there's a road called the D396 that takes you to Le Brian le chateau Brienne-le-Château that's exciting and then um <clears throat> we were lost <laughs> We are just lost. I mean, you know, uh, you have to remember we, we haven't got a map yet. We we still don't have a map, and so we're just like relying on the on the good faith of the French people to point us in the right direction, going south. When I think about this now, you know, uh, you know, we we all have like um, even before I started doing uh, Google Maps on my phone in my car. Um, and you know other people in the, in the rest of the technological world have been using um, you know sat navs and things. I was still all for uh, printing out maps, so you know on business trips around the country here in england i 'd be uh, going on to um, Green Flag, which is a website here which I think it produces better maps and I would print the maps out and I would have them on the passenger seat next to me. Um, and the reason why I used to do that was, well, on one business trip to uh, to Belfast, I was going to see this uh, company, and the taxi driver had sat-nav in his taxi. And the company was on a light industrial estate. And uh, sat-navs will take you within, I don't know, you know, a couple of hundred feet maybe. But a couple of hundred feet on a light industrial estate could put you, you know, around four corners of where you wanted to be. And the first time we went there, I was spent like a half an hour or more in a taxi, and he's going to me, does it look like that? And I don't know, I've never been there before. So I never trusted Satnav, so I always used to use maps. So um, <laughs> clearly I never learnt that when we were going on a trip to France. You know, take a map. I mean, God, really? So we didn't have a map. So uh, it was about 8 o'clock. <laughs> I've actually got it written down here. 8 o'clock, Sunday the 31st of July, 1983. And a Mercedes van pulled up. I remember this with a non speaking family a non speaking family not only did they not speak English, they didn't speak French they didn't say a word and and they took us to a place called barsa Orb, Barsa Orb, which is about twenty miles from a place called chamont c h a u m o n t now at this point um we came across a man or a man came across me and Dave, so it was getting you know it was getting a bit late. And uh, we came across a man called Michel Paris, or Michael Paris to you and me, and the fun starts here. So uh, I'll just give you the basics here. So um, he was a nuclear scientist and he was on his way back from a microlighting competition. I'll run that by you again. He was a nuclear scientist who uh, worked in Switzerland during the week and came home on a weekend And on this weekend, um, he had been to a micro-lighting competition and was on his way home. And he said, in his broken French and English, you can come and stay at my house. (laughs) So the first time that he said that, me and Dave were in the back of the car with our rucksacks. Oh, you can come and stay at my house. So Dave looked a bit worried. (laughs) So we we left the main roads and we got into these smaller uh, D-class roads. And Dave got more worried. <laughs> uh, we left the small roads and we headed off the country lanes into the hills. So this is the hills now above uh, Dijon. And Dave was seriously concerned for our safety. But I, I, I just thought it was hilarious. And I remember having a conversation with Dave in the back seat going, look, there's two of us. There's only one of him. You know, I'm like, we're from side, <laughs> So we're well hard, you know what I mean? So um, <clears throat> eventually uh, the car and it was, the, the roads were getting narrower quite literally. And we ended up crawling up through this ancient cobbled um, small town called Grand le Chateau, G-R-A-N-C-E-Y-L-E, Chateau, Grand le Chateau. And it's about 25 miles north of Dijon, way, way up in the hills. And he had this like large modern bungalow with a hoosted with a, a garden on, a couple of acres, you know, on the edge of town. And so uh, (laughs) I remember we stood on the edge of his garden and watched his loving wife open the back door to welcome the happy husband home from his weekend hobby. (laughs) But the look, I just remember the look on her face, it was just brilliant. Um, he is, and you know, he had to explain that why he'd brought these, and there was this rapid French conversation where he was explaining why he bought these disgustingly filthy pair of wayward looking tramps, and we, we were clearly lowering lowering the house prices of the neighbourhood just by our actually standing there. So he had to explain why he brought these people uh, home for dinner and her face was like, it was just like pure poetry, English poetry, French poetry, whatever poetry you like. It was just, she sa- it's, it said everything. And she could have also been a medal contender in the Olympics for France in the jaw-dropping event. Uh, she was not pleased. So anyway... <laughs> and we were like shuffling around because like you know you didn't need to speak Fran- french to understand what was going on here but you know we just thought well you know he's invited us here you know we've got nowhere else to go let's just go with it so we dumped our gear in the garden in the so he he said oh you can you know camp in the garden so we so we dumped our gear in the garden and uh shuffled into the house and and we met his son and his son was nice his son was uh slightly younger than us and there was some uh, other child there that I think they kept out of the way probably she was mad or something I I don't really know anyway um, so they got food out for us and um, they watched me and Dave woof down everything that they put on the table we'd had a long day I mean we'd had a hard day hitching in the sun dehydrated hadn't really had a meal yet and uh, I did most of the eating I've got to say Dave was being far too polite I was just like woofing it all down and uh, obviously, to complete his role as a host, uh, uh, Michael Paris then said, "Oh, uh, you can use uh, the bathroom." I can't remember his accent actually. I wish I could, but I, I remember his mannerisms, and and he had like little round spectacles as well. And he was like, it was all very. He was like so excited. We were like. A Christmas present to him we were like uh, a toy to him or something so it's like he brought home some new people uh, I don't know if they, he never brought people home before or if he had any friends at all but you know this was a this was a good thing for him so he said oh you can use the bathroom so I went in and uh, I used the bathroom first and um, I had lashings and lashings of hot water and I had a, a, an enormous bathroom I mean, we hadn't been clean for three days so you know we stank and and then Dave went in and had a a bath after me, uh, but actually he told me months months later after we came back that um, he didn't actually have a bath. He was just so embarrassed <laughs> at the state at which I left the bathroom that he spent all this time in the bathroom cleaning it. <laughs> Bless. So uh, so after we had been, been fed, we got cleaned. Uh, we could go out in the garden and we could uh, you know pitch the tent and um, and stay the night. So we got the tent up. But um, we were so exhausted. I mean, you know, we're not used to this kind of thing. We're not military trained. We don't go yomping. Um, So we didn't put the fly sheet on the tent. Now, uh, if you've ever been camping, uh, you'll know what the fly sheet is. Uh, You might call it something else, but basically it's that uh, additional um, canvas uh, sheet that you stretch and you put over the tent and the reason why you stretch it and you put it over the tent is because the rain then will hit it and then run off and so um, it's to protect the tent okay vitally important so uh, we didn't put the fly sheet on now we're up in the mountains uh, in in summertime in, northern, in southern France and uh, they do have lots of storms there which we found out not just that night but much much later on but there was this Mahusiv storm that uh, that just—it was like the heavens opened. It was th- it was Valhalla. It was everything. There was thunder and lightning. And it was just like absolutely chugging it down, and the the tent, of course, would just start to get pummeled into into. The, it started to collapse. It fell on top of us, and there was just like canvas, and we were in our sleeping bags, and we were just getting drenched. And uh, we saw the lights go off in the house, and we just thought, "You bastards!" And they just left us out here, uh, sorry, out in the garden, and we and we just uh, we, we were kind of becoming one with the soil. It was it was that bad. We were just getting completely obliterated. Um but uh, <laughs> the next day, um, you know, um, we woke up. Uh, we hadn't really slept, and uh, we dragged our stuff together. We just pushed things together. It was like pushing sponges together into a bag. And uh, he, he then, uh, good old Michael Paris. We didn't saw, didn't see his wife or his kids. Um, she probably, you know, didn't really want to come out and say goodbye. You know how it is. You know, it wasn't the best of situations the night before. So um, Michel Paris, he took us down to the main road to Dijon, and off he went for a um, a hard day splitting atoms or whatever it is that he was going to do. Um, so yeah, so that was uh, <laughs> that was uh, that was Michel Paris in Grancy le Chateau. And uh, for those of you keeping track of the incidents in this mammoth trek, uh, I think you'll agree that you have just experienced the Michel Paris incident.
3: Je me fais pique!
0: So it's Monday, the first of August, nineteen eighty-three. Michael Paris has gone to work, and me and Dave were dumped off, um, by the main road to Dijon. Um, and there was a little lay-by there, and uh, and a stream just behind that. And I remember, um, <laughs> I remember, um, just basically fouling the stream, having to um, relieve myself in in a, in a in a manner in which, and it's just as well there aren't any videos from the time because uh, I had to hang. Uh, from a tree branch uh, over the stream while I um, did what I needed to do and then uh it was, it was like having a sort of a water thing flew to wash your um behind as well once you did what you had to do anyway so um yeah so after i'd fouled the stream um then we came back to this little nearby and we got the gas burner out again because we haven't had breakfast yet because uh, uh I'm, I'm, I'm sure mrs paris was not about to uh, uh unleash her larder on us again and allow us to eat everything that she had in the kitchen for breakfast so we had um what The only thing we had left was a big tin of oxtail soup, because I I like oxtail soup. So we heated up this oxtail soup. Well, we didn't actually heat it all the way through, as I recall. Uh, The gas ran out on the burner. So we had a uh, a mildly warm half a tin of oxtail soup each, and off we went. And I've got pictures of here of me in in my photo album, uh, ones which Dave took of me and uh, using the clipboard technique, a clipboard I still have with me for old time's sake, and basically I had Dijon written on it. (laughs) And uh, the first time I was doing this, I had my summer hat on and my T-shirt and my brown pair of shorts. Now we were stood on the side of this road for quite some time, um, and later on the day, the weather changed. So then I I went off and I changed into my jeans and another T-shirt. and that seemed to work. Actually, looking looking at that looking at that picture there. So yeah, so things were hotting up. We were halfway down the east side of France. The temperature was rising. The further south we went, and the incidents became more frequent. Following that exhausting Sunday, we took a train from uh, Dijon. We got a lift in a Jag, actually. A bloke in a Jag gave us a lift to Dijon. Uh, we took a train from Dijon to Bourne, B E A U N E, Bourne, and we stayed there for the day. To relax, and um, we camped in the uh, in the municipal campsite uh, that was there, and I liked Bourne. Uh, I took a photo of it, which didn't come out too well. Of this uh, of this narrow street-lined uh, street with like four or five-story townhouses on it, and uh, pourquoi? Uh, and why did I do that? Because uh, it 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 the sounds embodied total Frenchness. There was like out of sort of various windows at different heights you had like babies crying you had men crying you had women shouting um car horns i don't know what they were coming out of french windows for but they were and uh and the occasional you know (laughs) conversation and it was like it was like really cool so yeah i I, I quite like Bourne. and uh yeah the streets Sounds of domesticity domesticity I've written down here demos is that how you pronounce it? Demosticity booming from every window. It was a typical French sound effects record, and equally the campsite as I recall, was also full of life <laughs> because the following morning, as that was Tuesday, the second of August nineteen eighty three we had to decamp pretty damn quickly um because it was full of ants. <laughs> And I have a picture of uh, Dave here um, looking quite bemused um, with uh, scraping ants off something or other. I don't know what it is. Some part of the tent. Yeah, because we woke up and it was like one of those um, uh, cartoons where you just see like trails of ants everywhere. Uh, I first remember seeing them on the tent pole and it was like it was like all these ants everywhere then I looked around and it was like although it looked random there was trails of ants that were in sort of wiggly waggly lines and they all knew what they were doing that was the most annoying thing so we had to break them all up but um, as they say fortune favours the brave well I don't know who said it but it never mentions how fortune favours those completely hapless wits that hike 350 miles deep into a foreign country without a map because that was me and Dave remember we had no map well things were about to turn differently for us because as we came out of the campsite um, there was a call box there and in the call box somebody had left a map <laughs> so now me and Dave had a map and that was indeed la finie de incident de bon. <laughs> now <clears throat> Of the strange thoughts that go through my head When I'm travelling um, There are many times when I've heard uh, you know, That expression or phrase And I've said it myself you know, Hey what a great name for a band Well whatever the name of the band will be I think um, Lyon Central Station at Midnight Should be the name of their first album So on Tuesday the 2nd of August 1983 With our newly acquired map Me and Dave made our way to Lyon uh, we actually got two lifts to Masson and got trained to Lyon. Uh, and one of the lifts in Masson um, was these, uh, I th- well, somewhere in England, Oxford, I think, there's like four English guys who may be suffering from shock still, when I firstly forced me and Dave into their VW camper. Um, what happened was we were trying to get a lift and um, we were on this road and the traffic lights turned red and this camper van had pulled up alongside us as we were walking along the pavement. And I heard English voices, and I heard these guys were English, and I, I just basically insisted that they give us a lift, and climbed into the side of the van. And what they decided to do was go through the lights, and then take the first left into the supermarket, and said they were getting out to have lunch. <laughs> so that was probably the shortest lift of the whole of the hitch. It was about twenty yards. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, we 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 were desperate, and uh, I, I needed I needed a lift. Um, still, we arrived anyway in Leon Central Station after getting a train, and we had to spend several hours in Leon waiting for a southbound train because it was getting a bit more difficult now to get out of big cities and things to hitchhike. So uh, we just decided that we get our, a train from uh, Leon down to Marseille and we had to spend um, several hours in the railway station waiting for the two minutes past midnight express from Lyon to Marseille that's the 0002 express to Marseille and I remember talking to a couple of Irish girls that were there and having to insist to a couple of them um, uh, mm, local Mediterranean types that were trying to drag them off to a party somewhere that uh, you know those girls were with me, and that um they had to go away. that was the first time I was I was kind of being macho you know in in a sort of like Teesside kind of way it, they would never understood me even if I could speak French but um yeah yeah, yeah you know, I had to sort of like be careful for them um. But when it came to um, buying a train ticket, they didn't open the the, uh, the 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 ticket offices for quite some time, and there was like hundreds of backpackers there. Like everybody had kind of like reached Leon, and then decided like we had decided that the only way to get down there now was to get a train, and so they opened up the um, the, the windows for the tickets at about half past eleven on the on the evening, and there was a huge big queue, and it was quite a party atmosphere in the queue, as I recall. Somebody had um, lit a joint and uh yeah, the police didn't mind it was you know everybody's having a good time there was a bit of a uh, bit of alcohol going up and down the queue it was quite fun because we got to the uh, the ticket office window and uh Dave had to practice his French again his longman's audio visual french stage 1 from school <laughs> so it so uh, and I was standing next to him now so he said his piece and it sounded okay to me but the woman behind the desk just went amsterdam <laughs> Amsterdam no and I thought and I said Dave said out loud Amsterdam and I I said as well Amsterdam but it didn't say I mean it clearly wasn't Marseille but it definitely didn't sound like Amsterdam eventually um, we found out that it was too expensive uh, to go to Marseille from Lyon well it was too expensive for us anyway so we got tickets to the first stop outside Lyon so this is where you must get your maps and just have a a quick look to see what is just south of Lyon. Well, just south of Lyon is a place called casse and that's C H A W S E dash S-U-R dash R-H-O-N-E, And it's another one of those places that isn't on the map, but it's definitely on the railway route. So the Express had come from Paris, and it was absolutely packed to capacity. When um, it pulled out of the station and had just gathered up enough speed again, when it arrived at casse we were getting off at 0007-that's five minutes after the express had left-at Cas and it was like the ICI of Lyon and explain about the ICI. ICI was a massive um, chemical industries up in the northeast of England, Um, a major uh, manufacturer of ammonia and that kind of thing. And basically we were getting off in the middle of a chemical plant. So as the train pulled to a halt, there was like hundreds of heads were looking out the train windows. And they were looking at, there was only like me and Dave and there was some other bloke uh, in overalls, it was clearly working the night shift, uh, we're getting off the train. So we'd like brought the Paris to Marseille Express to a halt in the middle of the night at the centre of the most heavily industrialised areas of Lyon. <laughs> and then it began to rain. <laughs> It did. It began to rain, and we were like, "Oh God!" I know, Where were we? The train pulled off, and we were like, stood on this like little wooden platform, massive chemical plant around us. It was pitch black. There was like tiny little, uh, you know, little industrial lights here and there, but you couldn't really see anything. So we were debating where to sleep, and and we saw this um large board with uh, black and white chevron direction signs on it. So we thought, "This'll do," you know. So um uh, we we we. we got behind there, uh, we put the fly sheet over to protect us from the rain, and uh, it worked quite well. And and, and then we got a few hours sleep until the next morning, that is. And the next morning, the noise of traffic was considerable. (laughs) We poked our heads out from our little impromptu bivouac. Do you like that? Bivouac? Isn't that a French-Canadian term or something? So there we were behind this chevron board sign lots of traffic and um what had been a a hugely sleeping industrial monster only a few hours earlier was now very much awake we'd camped on a major roundabout and it was rush hour and (laughs) i felt like one of those you know um japanese soldiers who'd been spent 40 years on a Pacific Island, thinking the war was still going on, and then suddenly emerged out into civilization. It was it was literally we we, we me and Dave were going what? It was like ah, and so we like we we dragged our kit across the road, and it was like the you know drivers were like nearly crashing into themselves, you know, because we were causing. We don't know whether it was just like shock from seeing these two weird people, um, uh, you know, just emerging from behind this sign and these bushes, or the fact that we were like causing a traffic jam and they're just about to crash into each other but yeah uh it was that was like totally weird N- never camped on a roundabout before never done it again but um yeah it was quite a laugh at the time so th- that was that was then so that was the morning of wednesday uh the 3rd of august 1983 and because we had nothing else to do we decided to walk 10 kilometers to a place called vienne and then we got a train to valence there was quite a few v's that day and uh, we should a really well organized uh campsite a big large municipal campsite on the edge of town and uh, we pitched tent and got cleaned up and uh, then we decided that we go to the refectory is that a french word refectory anyway um the sort of the building where they had all the food and that and uh, remember the sort of fortune fa- favoring the hapless wits people who didn't go without a map uh, we walked around the back of this car and we bumped into Michael and Anthony <laughs> well, Weirdly I mean we had no idea where they were And uh, I, I remember Saying the first thing The first thing that came into my head was Bloody hell <laughs> I was so shocked and, and, and so were they uh, Yeah so then we spent the night uh, Swapping stories and arranging uh, To meet the next evening In the campsite in Avignon uh, <laughs> as, if, as if things were going to be that easy eh?
4: be all right listen baby i'm lonely and blue just being here without you i wish i could be in the south of france -France. in the south of france sitting right next to
3: you
0: so here we go chapter four due south (laughs) <laughs> so it's Thursday the fourth of August. So uh, we split up again. and We kept in the same pair. So it was me and Dave and Mick and Anthony. And just like in Saint Omer, back up in the north uh, of France, I lost the toss again, and uh, and we got the Duff bit of road to hitch from. <laughs> there was there was a good bit of road which Mick and Anthony got on, and then um, we 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 couldn't obviously four people couldn't hitch on the same road. That would be you know bad. So so me and Dave went off on this Duff bit of road. And it took a long time to get a lift. And I have to say, uh, we owe a lot to the Beatles uh, on that trip um, from Calais because while stuck on the side of the road for hours and hours, we must have sang like every Beatles song. Uh, We did uh, solos, uh, we did duets, uh, we did harmonising. When when you're out there by yourself, you know, there's nothing else to do. We we did harmonising. We even sang them very badly. We did everything. <laughs> and uh, and that day was no exception, I remember. We uh, we sung ourselves hoarse and, uh, because we had nothing else to do. So, and my notes show me that um we got a lift to Montelimar. M-O-N-T-E-L-I-M-A-R. Got no details of that, though. I don't know. And then we got a lift from a woman in a van. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's right, yeah. About 25 miles down the road to just outside Orange on the N7. So look that on your maps we are now outside orange on the n7 um and so we decided um uh, and it was really uh, i remember it was quite a it was quite a noisy road uh the n7 and we decided to uh, refresh ourselves by taking a trip into uh, a roadside le routier cafe a proper le routier cafe you know as as designated by the french government or whoever does these things you know a, a real a real classic one and whilst we were in there and the only other people in there were a couple of guys from manchester and they were professional um hitchhikers uh, this was their like their third european tour but they were a bit rough uh, they were they were skinheads and um and they lived rough as well i mean they they weren't campers they had just like these one big rucksacks like um you know survival bag things and uh, and they looked rough as well and and they oh they were common i'm mean, a common as muck <laughs> you know uh, there was just something about the their the, the whole demeanor and 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 the way that they they talked and what we were going to say and everything that um anyway uh, we left about an hour later and i actually thought that we were going to rob the place <laughs> so i thought we, we we best be out of it so on the southern trip going down to the south of france our final trip in france was the the best one that we had so from just outside that uh le routier cafe we got a lift off a german couple um in this superb mercedes uh to the outskirts of avignon it was it was wonderful i remember it Uh, aircon oh my god aircon And, uh, and the comfortable leather seats and it was luxury Um, but it was only for 15 miles (laughs) but he got us to Avignon Um, now if you remember um, the night before um, Anthony had said that uh, we'll meet you in the campsite at at, uh, Avignon now, of course, of course, what we didn't know, again we didn't know anything really that Avignon is a big place. Avignon is a big place. It's got a pont there, you know, sous le pont Avignon, don't it, whatever the song is, you know. And so me and David come into um into Avignon from one direction, a particular direction because we'd taken the duff road uh, out of Valence that morning. And uh, we crossed over this bridge which was actually parallel to the old sous la Pont bridge and right and right by the side of this bridge was this uh, huge campsite. Now what we'd what we'd arranged, and this time we had done some pre-arranging, is that uh, we'd we'd meet we'd go to the gates of the campsite, and we'd meet there at um, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock, midnight. So um, it would get you know throughout a day, depending on what time you arrived at the campsite. And then we would um, go we'd each go to the front gates, and then we we'd meet somebody there. So Dave and I got to the campsite, and. Um, it was really packed um you know this is Avignon. this is the height of the summer all the northern french had come down for their holidays so it was really really packed um and there wasn't uh a- enough room for the usually designated areas where people could stay so the caravans and the little caravettes that they had uh were put in they had like fenced off areas not fences but hedges so there was like these little um areas where it would be one caravan or one caravette in this hedged off area and what they were doing they were putting people with uh, tents and backpackers next to them so you were you were literally penned up quite close to somebody like that so uh, we got shown to this um, uh, little pen area there's hedges and hedges and hedges and going on for miles it was a huge campsite um and and so we were in there and we were stuck next to some a couple who were actually from the north of France and uh, they were bewildered as we were, except, you know, they were bewildered in their own language. We were just bewildered in English. Um, And I think we'd got there, David, looking at this picture now, if I go and have a look at this picture, um, yeah, the shadows weren't that long. Dave's took a picture of me um, just before we entered the campsite and I'm completely sunburnt. But uh, it must be must be late in the afternoon, so that's probably about three-ish. So we were probably at the gate about three-ish. So we waited there for a bit. Uh, no, no turnout from Mick and Anthony. So then we went in and we got a place. We went back there at nine at six o'clock, nothing. Went back there at nine o'clock, nothing. Um so then it was about half past 9 and we're in our tent in, in our little uh, next to this caravette we we talked a little bit uh to the people next to us uh, the people from northern france uh, about you know what we're doing where we're going and all that sort of stuff um and we were still wondering what what are we going to do about um you know making anthony how we're going to meet them and then and then as if by magic i heard this english voice um and i thought that sounds like anthony that And I thought, where's that voice coming from? And it was from the other side of the hedge (laughs) behind us. And I thought, no way, this is ridiculous. So um, I destroyed the hedge, uh, managed to push my way through it. And they were there. (laughs) They'd been brought into the campsite, um, you know, and brought all the way down here and just put next to somebody else. Now, you know, (laughs) that was amazing enough. But the the most amazing thing was that... um, what Dave and I then found out is that uh, Avignon's got about five campsites and um, Anthony and Michael had come in from the uh, other side of the city and got a lift into the other side of the city and at each individual campsite um, because there were four these campsites the other ones they would actually put um, notices like little direction arrows and a little note attached to um, the, the, uh, the entrance to each of these saying they'd gone on to the next one. And so so there was like four campsites with all these notes for me and Dave we didn't know did we we just come in the other way into avignon and we just assumed that that was the campsite like we discussed uh, so i think i think fate was um i think fate was uh, definitely with us uh, on that whole trip down with meeting them in, in valence and and then and then meeting them on the other side of the hedge in, in the campsite in avignon so yeah so that is the um, that so that was basically how we how we got down there um, how we got how we got on during the holiday and how we got back. Well, I think that's another story for a later day. And that was the Fab Four's French frolic down to the south of France. In fact, it was actually just what me and Dave got up to. But we'll have another podcast later on to talk about what we did down there. And also the trip back. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I know I did. It brought back lots of happy memories and uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, that's the end of another show from wonderful Radio Flanagan and me, Paul Flanagan. I hope you've enjoyed it. I know I have. And, um, well, I'll uh, catch you next time on Wonderful Radio Flanagan.